Hi, everyone. We thought we'd give you an update on what to expect from the podcast after this 37th episode. In episode 38, Renat and Carrie catch up with Glenn Block on Hypermedia APIs and the new ASP.NET Web API book that he was a part of. In episode 39, Renat and Carrie discuss what is happening on Renat's new work project using Linux, Docker, and Go as of March 2014, and then they think about the code they will be writing next for the podcast. In episode 40, they'll start getting back to code and implementation examples of some of the concepts they've been discussing recently on the show. Thank you for listening, and we always look forward to your feedback on beingtheworst.com or on Twitter at beingtheworst. Cool. Let's get started. Being the Worst, Episode 37. Recorded Thursday, January 16th, 2014. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast, audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman, with your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdulid. In this episode, Carrie and Renat discuss some of the learning that Renat and the Happy Pancake team did to evaluate their language and tool options for their new project. Renat makes some observations about his long history with C Sharp and the benefits of looking at other languages and approaches. In episode 38, they may even discover new ways that C-Sharp can do some of the things that Renat says can be hard to do using traditional C-Sharp and .NET techniques. They finish up by getting into more of the microservices, or maybe component-based approaches, that Renat has experienced recently. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. So, Renat, I've seen a bunch of cool tweets and some blog posts from you about Happy Pancake this and Locad that, and you're going to get me all cut up on what's going on with you, right? Yeah, sure. Cool. Okay, first of all, it's really nice to be back uh, here with you because uh, being the worst uh, podcast recordings is something that I really miss. Me too. And so we're getting back here. Yes. So uh, last two months were uh, quite packed with stuff and exciting because uh, somewhere at the beginning of December, I got an invitation from Thomas Ross to join Happy Pancakes, which is the Swedish uh, website. It's actually a Swedish dating website. Hmm. The largest free dating website, I believe, uh, in Sweden. Every tenth suite is there. Wow. <laughs> uh, I might be slightly wrong on the numbers, but still doesn't Got fit it. Uh, somewhere out there. And the really attractive part uh, of this job was that it was a chance for me to get out of .NET world because .NET is something uh, that I've been into for, I think, in like eight, ten years. And mm-hmm. it's probably the only, C-sharp is the only language I really know. Mm-hmm. Or like this, except from the Pascal through Pascal Delphi stuff, which was in the childhood. And for the last, I'd say, Two years, uh, well, C-sharp felt quite limiting because it's one paradigm, one world. And uh, the feeling that I've got is that that medical system, it forces you to think in kind of monolithic way. Hmm. Because like all the .NET code is, uh, if it's backend, it's usually some monolithic enterprise server with multiple layers, something like uh, Microsoft SharePoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it is a client, then it's something like uh, really complicated, really tightly linked together, something like a smart client. And it's everywhere. The tooling is there. Uh, things just happen to work there. And over the last, I'd say, six months, maybe a little bit more, I started getting glances uh, at the other side of the fence mm-hmm. where uh, things are so different. Like Node.js, uh, I don't even remember, uh, Java, Akka, Scala, et cetera, et cetera. Right, I remember things, you digging into that. Yeah, and uh, basically people were doing some really hacky things, uh, like building servers from a bunch of scripts, and it was uh, felt amazing. <laughs> but completely impossible in, to do in C-sharp. 
For example, if you want to buy, uh, to set up some server endpoint, basically if you want to create a, uh, some web server or TCP server, uh, socket server, it doesn't matter. Uh, in C Sharp, you have to jump through a bunch of hoops. You'll have even more hoops if you are using Windows Communication Foundation for that, which is supposed to be the default and the preferred way to do that. And apparently in other languages, uh, and as I've learned uh, later, for example, in Go, you can, uh, which is uh, Go language, I believe it's from Google, mm -hmm. you can create a web server uh, out of, like, in a few lines of code, literally like three or four lines of code, and mm -hmm. it will be running web server. And you can create a web server, for example, web handler for that web server out of uh, queue, which is uh, called channel there, or integer or pointer to, to an integer or a string or a function. That's something that's not really conceivable in C-sharp world. Well, you can do that, but that will be require quite a lot of code. So within the first two months with Happy Pancakes, I encountered amazing languages like Haskell, Erlang, and Go language. Hmm. Uh, where Erlang is a language, where, for example, I think it handles 50% of all mobile stuff, like all the conversation and in the world, and something like 30% of all internet traffic. I might be wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really tricky language to deal with. For example, writing web server there, it requires a lot of stuff, but like if you write something in Erlang, if you structure it according to the methodology of Erlang, then the damn thing will have sustainably low latencies, and it will literally never go down, because it handles failures. Mm -hmm. Because handling failures, fault tolerance, is built into the Erlang. Mm -hmm. uh, then, uh, Go language. Mm -hmm. uh, it's built, it's really nice for building uh, various backend servers or scripts. For mm -hmm. example, Docker is uh, built, was written using Go language. Hmm. And uh, it's extremely simple, or well, it's supposed to be simple. It feels like a bit of mix of C sharp with uh, C, <laughs> um, with uh, a bit of this like functional object oriented uh, paradigm mix. They have a really nice object uh, polymorphism. Polymorphism. Mm -hmm. I think it's. I'm not sure. Uh, it, still, uh, so the language is really simple. I think they have only 25 keywords there, uh, and it has a really nice ecosystem. Then uh, one more language uh, that I've discovered was Haskell. Mm -hmm. this, that's the functional language that has been around for decades, mm -hmm. I believe. But it's really amazing. It's purely functional. But and I thought like that stuff like Haskell, for example, it was completely outdated. Mm -hmm. Like we're living in .NET world. We have this uh, really nice frameworks and like um, MSL and .NET uh, virtual machine is really nice. So why would anywhere care about this old uh, age tools? Mm -hmm. Actually, Haskell, uh, for example, it has amazing uh, type uh, system, which allows you to model things really efficiently. And it's like writing a poetry in the code. Basically, it's completely different uh, from C-sharp because in C-sharp, you're being the verbose. You're telling the system how your code should be executed. Like that's imperative style. Uh, in Haskell, for example, uh, you are expressing th thoughts in a slightly different way. You're structuring, structuring them uh, in a lot more uh, compact way. Hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the feelings that I guess it's quite common uh, for Haskell developers when you start learning to that, once in a while you want to run to your wife and tell her, hey, uh, darling, there is some beautiful code that I've just written. <laughs> Uh, and if actually C-sharp developers are interested in learning Haskell, uh, there are nice videos by Eric Mayer, hmm. uh, who is working on C-sharp in uh, Microsoft, mm -hmm. about Haskell. Hmm. So he's teaching, uh, doing a bit of uh, Haskell teaching from like C-sharp perspective. 
Mm-hmm. There, uh, like these tutorials are really nice, and I think it's like already in tutorial nine, he's uh, showing how to write a parser in Haskell. Hmm. And uh, that is totally yeah. uh, independent from his Microsoft stuff, or something related to? Is it just because he knows how to do it, and it's in his free like, time or something? Or? Uh, he's focusing on languages. He's actually ah. uh, driving link development, for example, and C sharp de- uh, language C sharp language development. I see. Uh, as I believe uh, in Microsoft. Hmm. So languages are his stuff. Got it. Okay. And he was actually, I think, the guy behind uh, observables. Uh, and so uh, Haskell is definitely something I would love to learn in the future, for, for example, for the sake of domain modeling, mm-hmm. uh, because if you have multiple languages at your disposal, even, for example, if you will uh, capture your domain in the C Sharp, mm-hmm. it is always good to try to express it in multiple languages mm-hmm. as a writing exercise because it helps you to capture things uh, better. And Haskell, as it seems now, uh, has like really, it, it is an experimental language, uh, and it has really amazing capabilities for expressing things. How did you uh, over the? I mean, because we're talking over a span of just like a couple of months, you were messing around with two, three, four languages there. Like, how was your brain able to keep it all straight and remember like which syntax and which uh, methodology paradigm you were actually trying to supposed to be obeying and all? When I hear about all that, it seems like really cool, but I, I don't know how successful I would be trying to explore all these things simultaneously. I, I think I probably need 10 or 15 more years experience in languages or something. You know? Actually, uh, when I was in C-sharp world, locked only in C-sharp world, mm-hmm. it felt that it would be hard. Mm-hmm. But like getting, come on, we're developers and uh, learning things uh, is something that we're doing on an everyday basis, like learning new frameworks, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, with languages, it's slightly more hard because you have to uh, start thinking about the language, mm-hmm. uh, about like what ideas, what is designed, uh, it was designed with. What are strong parts and weak parts? And actually, as you, even if you spend a few days doing that, for example, if you try Haskell, uh, then you start actually being more conscious about your own language, which is C sharp. Mm-hmm. Like you start understanding, okay, this was actually a strong part of C sharp and this was uh, the weak part of C sharp. And like trying to write uh, C sharp in functional style, it's, it would be not uh, really efficient. However, the strong part of C sharp is that it's imperative language, and which means that I can really optimize for the computer execution. I can really write performant code if I manage to deal with garbage collection. Mm-hmm. So basically, you start weighing things, and uh, once again, learning this, it wasn't as difficult as uh, I expected. Hmm. And uh, I haven't been so excited about uh, the development in many years, actually. Oh, and so that's something new. Because... Uh, for I think for the last two years, uh, all the things I've been learning, they were more uh, slowly incremental. Like mm-hmm. there was nothing radically new. Yes, mm-hmm. like new architectures. Uh, yes, uh, I've learned a few things uh, about the security architectures. Then a few days, a few months later, I've realized that I was stupid. Then a few months later, <laughs> I realized that I was architecting over-architecting things all over again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. But this was kind of incremental development with the architectures mm. and uh, actually stepping out uh, to different languages it helps you to start seeing things from much bigger perspective yeah and i can see how that would uh, would help and and i've seen you mention a couple things like microservices and stuff and I, mm. I don't know how this all fits into that conversation but it's really aside from just the joy of learning new things and kind of the fire hose of you know this whole universe is opening mm. up to you around different approaches i totally uh, can understand the excitement and, and interest in that. But from a practical perspective, like when you look at all these different options and 
um, you know, obviously it's kind of nice to know about these things and, you know, solve the problem with the right tool, kind of a, an approach, but have you just in your last couple of months, have you seen or used or done anything where you're like, Oh, these kinds of real world problems I face all the time is going to be so much easier and blah, blah, blah. Or is it just cool? Like I, what's the balance between like, I can solve this problem I have in the real world much, much better and faster because of this framework and language or no, it just feels cool because I'm using some other cool language that C Sharp could have done anyway. Like what's the balance there? Okay. So the stuff that we started talking about the microservices, mm-hmm. it has a direct link with the languages. Okay. We'll, uh, in the podcast show notes, uh, we'll provide a few links to a few videos about microservices. Okay. And some, there are some which will be linked to, uh, programmers anarchy. Mm-hmm. I strongly recommend to watch them mm-hmm. because, uh, they contain, uh, like they express all these things much better than I would ever possibly be able to. Mm-hmm. And so the stuff that we started doing in the client in the last episodes, mm-hmm. uh, it was about building uh, components of a client that were relatively independent and that were communicating with asynchronous uh, messages. Right. And technically, we were able to swap uh, out some of the components, for example, changing the UI because UI parts were components as well. And then we were able to start, uh, I was adding new components, for example, I think it was like multi-level back button. Mm-hmm. That was something that uh, got added to the client uh, as a standalone component. Uh, and actually, this idea of uh, decomposing your big solution into a bunch of ind- uh, independent components which communicate via the established language, it's, if you scale it out to uh, big backend systems, it's what microservices are about. Hmm. Uh, you Essentially, when you're dealing with some problem, uh, you try to decompose it into a bunch of smaller systems mm-hmm. uh, which are designed to work together. And it allows you to have smaller bits of problems, smaller bits of systems to think about, and mm-hmm. you can uh, reason about them easier, and you can uh, uh, compose them, like small bits, you can compose them back together in order to build some functionality. Mm-hmm. So uh, within the last two months, or maybe even more than two months of work I've been doing at Locad, I was actually writing a business backend of Locad towards microservices. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the stuff that we had previously, it was uh, hugely based on my quote-unquote framework called Locat SecureS, mm-hmm. which was supposed to make things simpler uh, while developing distributed systems on uh, Windows Azure. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, it was a big mistake hmm. because the idea behind Locat SecureS was that it was a framework and you defined your system in terms of application services, projections, I think the uh, ports and other building blocks. Mm-hmm. And basically had one core and they were plugging blocks around that. And mm-hmm. everything was tightly related. Mm-hmm. As reality showed that it uh, wasn't such a good idea because you ended up with systems that were too tightly composed. Basically, uh, you had application services sending messages all around the place. And it was hard for me and for people to reason about, okay, so where does this message go? Why does it trigger the whole set of chain reactions? And why do I get this strange side effect? Hmm. It basically, it was like components chatting together without any clear structure. Mm-hmm. And then going with the idea of microservices is that you, once again, you decompose your problem into a set of small services. And each component, it defines a contract. So basically, we define what the component will do. We might change that later. Mm-hmm. And we define the common language that this component will be talking. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. how these components will communicate. So, for example, in the case of uh, Locat backend, I've decided that we'll be using JSON over HTTP as a RESTful API using service stack to implement that. Mm-hmm. So basically it meant that you could access any component either with uh, from C Sharp or from JavaScript or like even from Fiddler. Mm-hmm. And this had a side effect that each component, like even if I developed component but I didn't have a client library or I didn't have uh, any other component talking to that, I could already test that component by uh, fiddling with the browser or using Windows tool called Fiddler mm-hmm. to listen to all the communications. Right. And these communications were clearly readable because they were uh, JSON over HTTP. Mm-hmm. And since HTTP is something that has been around for decades, there is already a bunch of set of tools and techniques that you can already leverage. Because you can add security to all the communications simply by adding HTTPS. Mm-hmm. You can encrypt all the communication. And for example, if you're doing something else, you might need to roll uh, out your own encoding, encryption, etc. Mm-hmm. If you're doing HTTP properly uh, in a RESTful style, you can easily scale out reads by adding reverse proxy uh, in front of, of all the GET requests. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of the ideas. Basically, uh, when you define how your components communicate, uh, you immediately can get a bunch of side effects uh, from this uh, communication protocol. Mm-hmm. Obviously, different projects will have different communication uh, concepts. Like, for example, somebody might choose RabbitMQ for some reason. Somebody might choose uh, NanoMQ or ZeroMQ. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so we can think about building a system that is decomposed into the components as thinking about a town. How would you approach uh, building a town? For example, people that lived uh, decades from now, would remember SimCity 1, SimCity 2, mm-hmm. where you start by planning out, okay, this would be a residential zone, this would be industrial zone. Mm-hmm. And that's how you actually start building, a, start designing a system that is decomposed into the components. Mm-hmm. You say that there'll be a component, uh, for example, responsible for billing, there'll be a component responsible for users, there'll be a component responsible for user registrations, and this user registration component will probably be using uh, user component and billing component to create new uh, information once the user registers. Mm-hmm. So basically, you start with a really high-level plan. And then at that high-level plan, you can already think out uh, how, the, how the components exactly would communicate because you know the communication protocol. And you can think uh, of roughly of what uh, the messages or events or uh, RPC calls would be flying between these components. And, for example, in the, one of the videos that we'll be linking to, mm-hmm. uh, it was by Fred George. He was using high-performance uh, asynchronous message bus in order to let the components communicate. Mm-hmm. And, for example, uh, at Locat, I was using two communication channels. I was using Greg's event store as uh, for asynchronous pub-sub. One of the components, for example, needed to have their own projection derived from the information coming from other components. And components was also calling each other through the RPC calls. It was a deliberate technical decision with side effects. And the idea here is that uh, once you define the outside, the public contracts of the components, like how they communicate, the internal implementation of the component is something that is, can be different in every single time. Meaning that a component is application of its own. Ideally, it will be even uh, capable of being deployed on its own. The architecture of that component, it's up to the, each specific case. So uh, while starting to develop a component, I usually would start with dead simple in-memory implementation, like storing all users in, uh, in-memory dictionary, which is not even thread-safe. 
Mm -hmm. But it allows me to start uh, designing other components that talk to that component. Mm -hmm. And then if things don't work out, I can scrap the component because it's just a few files, a few lines of code, and try to come up with a different design. And then I can, we can uh, iterate evolving the components, like bunches of components or component implementations. How does um, all of that stuff relate to or compare and contrast, I guess, with over the course of the podcast, we've talked about things like bounded context or just context and language and application services and aggregates with their own you know, distinct responsibilities and all that and not sharing state and all that like. This seems like it's similar types of reusable, isolated components working together, but what am I missing that's like dramatically different with uh, microservices versus what we were already doing? Okay, uh, so domain-driven design with uh, its methodologies of context mapping, uh, like looking at the boundary context, using uh, the language to identify boundaries in the domain model, mm -hmm. is a tool to uh, look at the uh, real-world problem and slice it to, into a bunch of bounded contexts mm -hmm. and somehow establish uh, the relationship between them. Especially it is useful when you're working, for example, in a multi-team environment. Mm -hmm where you have to establish, okay, this team is managing this bounded context, this team is managing these domains, and uh, some is inferior to the other because one can dictate what other can do and not. Mm -hmm. And you can take these details of the reality and incorporate them into the design. Mm -hmm. So domain-driven design is a methodology. Mm -hmm. Especially it uh, becomes more useful when you start thinking in terms of events, uh, domain events, and you bring things like uh, event storming in a as a tool to capture your domain and somehow separate it into different contexts. Mm -hmm. So, and DDD, from this perspective, is a, one of the tools to slice your business domain into small areas. And then you, you can say, okay, this area will be as one component, uh, this area will be another component. Okay. So basically, components are implementations. Mm -hmm. Component is a technical term, uh, meaning how we are going to implement the system. But in order to implement the system in a decomposed way, one has first to slice, like somehow separate the domain into small areas mm -hmm. that are coherent enough, that are not too entangled, that are abstracted to the useful level. Mm -hmm. And DDD is one of the methodologies that uh, lets you to slice things in this way. Right. That lets you look at this complicated problem that you have and somehow start separating that. Mm -hmm. Especially, for example, if you have uh, a legacy uh, entangled system running in production and you have to start migrating it to the, uh, something more decomposed, something more simple, without bringing it down offline. Mm -hmm. So DDD is just a methodology to, that helps to identify boundaries between the components. Yes. Basically, it's a methodology to uh, free the components from the entangled mess they're uh, currently living in. Okay. Uh, there's obviously other ways to look at the problem in order to find the proper uh, boundaries. Basically, all these methodologies that help you to identify the boundaries of the components, they just give you suggestions. Okay, you can slice the system this way, or you can slice the system this way. It's up for you to choose in each specific case. Right. For example, uh, you can choose how to slice the systems uh, based on technical requirements. Maybe there is a bunch of somewhat related processes that require the same level of technical performance. Or maybe uh, there are systems that are clearly decomposed from each other uh, because they are not linked by time. So this stuff you can put uh, into offline job or background job processor that can be a separate component. Mm -hmm. It's all uh, extremely iterative, meaning that you start with one way of slicing things into components and then iterate uh, from there. 
trying different scenarios, evolving each uh, like the entire big component map, and also evolving uh, implementations of components. And that's actually uh, how it relates to the my excursion into the languages. Uh, because at Happy Pancake, we decided that we are going to start with the components. We're going to base the next version of the design on the microservices, mm-hmm. with the idea that this system has to evolve quickly, that we have to experiment a lot, because with components you can uh, and which are talking to each other via asynchronous calls, uh, you can do things like uh, A/B testing. You can uh, experiment. You can plug new components. Uh, you can add new strategies uh, without breaking the entire system or being, bringing it offline. And additional thing is that since components are not really related to each other, you can implement each component in a different language. Obviously, that would be really hard if you have components written in .NET because that would require Windows, expensive licenses, and like really complicated setups. But if you're living on Linux world, and by the way, some readers might say that, okay, there is a mono that can run C-sharp on Linux, but this is not really, really production. It's not stable, and it's a bunch of pain. Hmm. As it turns out, despite the promise. <laughs> uh, and so if you're uh, on Linux world and you're using some lightweight tools uh, and some lightweight languages and you use a packaging container system like Docker, it becomes extremely easy to have multiple components that are written in different languages and you can actually pick uh, for each component the best language, the best framework, maybe the, not the best, but the most efficient, more suitable for you or even more fun for you approach of implementing that. Well, those kind of containers sound similar to cloud service, kind of a isolated, yes. you know, kind of a thing. Yes. So basically, cont- containers are a lightweight uh, way to separate applications mm-hmm. on the operating system without uh, paying the price of virtual machines. Mm-hmm. So containers are extremely lightweight. You can have hundreds of them running on the machine uh, easily. And Linux kernel will uh, handle the task of actually making sure that they're completely separated and they don't interact with each other unless you allow them to. Right. But I mean, conceptually, is it from a cost and, uh, I guess, componentization <laughs> approach, can I run whatever I want in like an Azure cloud service? And, you know, I'm not really paying, I don't know how much more it would cost me or cost the same or not, but it seems like if I wanted to have a similar kind of implementation style of little components doing their own thing, running off in the cloud somewhere. I could have 500 cloud services in their own languages doing whatever I want them to, communicating over agreed-upon protocols or something like that. Yeah. And in case, for example, if you're doing something, some Linux stuff uh, and you're using Docker, uh, you can run this 500 or at least 100 of com- different containers and services on one machine, which is not that expensive. And in case of Windows Azure, you'll probably end up uh, running them on different machines, on different services. Mm-hmm. Okay. Be- because you'll be uh, and you'll be paying the overhead of virtualization. Uh, and I, f- I don't think that you can fit that many machines on a c- the- that many Windows virtual machines on a commodity uh, small server. Hmm. Uh, so basically, uh, all the components are is a lightweight to separate execution of multiple applications, to separate like their networks, their disk I/O. Uh, and it's a standardized way, meaning that if you package a com- uh, container, then it can be shipped to any application server that is running Docker, and it will be executing there. Where do I go to click the button that says, you know, give me five Docker instances, I don't want to do anything on Linux, I just want this code to run in Docker. Like, is is there a service that does that, or do you have to actually become a Linux administrator? 
I think they, there are already platform as a service provider that are written mm-hmm. using Docker. Mm-hmm. And I think one of them was uh, implemented using just a few hundred lines of uh, shell script. Hmm. So Docker is a tool for managing Linux containers. Okay. Uh, and I think they're also defined how to uh, structure these containers, how to ship them, et cetera, et cetera. So, so container and, is like a, a Linux OS concept? Yes. Okay. It's uh, something supported by the kernel, and uh, there is a bunch of tools that are designed on top of that. I see. Cool. So the idea is that once you have uh, an ability to truly develop components independently, mm-hmm. then you suddenly get much more freedom. You get to pick whatever tools you want to use, or maybe pick the tools uh, that you're interested in learning. Because right. uh, ability to learn is a huge, actually, uh, motivational factor. And as I've learned, it's uh, an essential work factor for me. Mm-hmm. And so at Locat, I wasn't able to do that because like, this is, the company is completely .NET shop, mm-hmm. .NET only shop. And that's why I was switching to Happy Pancake. Right. Mm-hmm. Because there it's like the idea of uh, having multiple languages, uh, having the ability of learning what you want to. But even if we're living in .NET world, and even if we say that we can't use any other uh, platforms or languages for risk reasons, mm-hmm. uh, it's possible to benefit from microservices architecture by uh, making sure that your uh, enterprise app, or whatever, it stays relatively simple and it stays like uh, comprehensible. For example, uh, this Tuesday uh, I had a release of microservices implemented in .NET mm-hmm. at Locat, writing the entire backend. And I think ended up with like 10 microservices, mm-hmm. where each microservice, it has uh, on average three or four classes, and that's it. And <laughs> uh, remember the beginning example of Locat Secures, where we had user registration process. Mm-hmm. This actually uh, was implemented as a bunch of standalone mm-hmm. microservices. One microservice, for example, are responsible only for tracking user passwords, identities, and logins. Mm-hmm. The other microservice is responsible only for registration. And the script is uh, relatively simple. For example, at Locat, we're, we're allowing users to recover passwords. Or we're allowing users to invite other users uh, to their account uh, by sending a special uh, email with an encrypted token. Mm-hmm. And these two concepts were uh, initially kind of composed together with the usual user stuff in one bounded context, with uh, actually with uh, quite a few other concepts as well, and they resulted in highly entangled code. Hmm. While uh, re- reinventing the wheel uh, in microservice approach, it's like this ended up as extremely small, tiny services, and some of them don't even use uh, CQRS architecture. They don't even have an architecture. For example, uh, when you're sending a recovery token, you don't actually need to store it somewhere so the uh, password recovery process, it doesn't have any persistence. All mm-hmm. it does is just uh, encrypts the information about the user, information about the token issue date, and uh, information about the version of uh, user aggregate in a single token uh, using the private key. And then it sends out as a mail. And then when somebody uh, clicks on that uh, link in the email, which verifies his uh, ownership of the address, uh, then the same component merely uh, verifies that the key signature is correct, verifies that the token has not expired, and that's it. These four classes, like in a microservice, for example, are they they still using the aggregate and event messages getting passed between each other that we talked about before, or is it totally different now? Well, a majority of the classes, they still are event-sourced. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, in some cases, there is event sourcing, but there are no aggregates. 
Hmm. I'm simply embedding uh, events to the stream. Hmm. Almost as simple as like a main class in a console that's spitting out an event message to the stream? Absolutely. In this case, uh, since I'm using service stack, mm-hmm. so basically the service stack is composed, like when you're writing a service uh, with service stack, it's uh, a class that uh, has a bunch of public methods mm-hmm. that uh, are called when, basically that are executed uh, when a call is placed. Mm-hmm. And inside this uh, public method, for example, get user accounts or get a list of all accounts all it does, for example, it looks up into the projection, gets all the user accounts, and returns the result. I see. Uh, for example, another uh, case of microservice would be a standalone component that allows searching, that allows administrators to search for an account. Mm-hmm. All it does, it subscribes to all account events, mm-hmm. uh, and then it uses them to build in-memory uh, projection, which is searched uh, using a text match whenever a request is placed. I see. And ability to choose different implementation for each component without being tied by uh, requirements that all components have the same architecture, it really allows you to first start really simple and second, optimize the component as much as you need. Mm -hmm. And for example, a lot of components that are read-heavy at Locat and there are lots of lots of reads at Locat services because we have a bunch of new applications that already use this uh, kind of component API mm-hmm. uh, to get, uh, for example, uh, user information or to authenticate user, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And since these are web applications, there are lots of lots of reads. And uh, by looking at the dashboard status of all the services, I can see that there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of calls that are placed to this kind of uh, backend API every day. Hmm. And I've, like mean latency of such calls is like usually less than a millisecond for the <laughs> reads, simply because I'm querying. Uh, sorry, not mean latency. Mean processing time. Uh, mean latency is probably like less than uh, a few milliseconds. And this was possible because uh, it is allowed in the microservice architecture, and it makes sense to optimize the microservice implementation the way that makes sense in each specific case. Yes. And if your environment allows it. Uh, if you can have multiple languages, you can even go as far as to rewrite the component in the language that makes more sense. It sounds like you have flexibility to implement the internal details of each component any way you want, but every internal, every component is always communicating over HTTP or HTTPS with JSON via with commands and events, or like what is the common language and protocol between all these isolated components? Uh, that's something you decide uh, when you start a project. Because uh, communication is really important, and that will govern all the components. And the choice of communication protocol will have side effects. Mm-hmm. So uh, how the components will communicate, you have to decide at the beginning of each project. Usually good default choice would be JSON over HTTP mm-hmm. or uh, XML over HTTP, simply because that's something that has support in any platform. That's something that has a lot of tools, a hugely rich ecosystem. Uh, servers, utilities to make it uh, work even better. Mm-hmm. And it's relatively scalable, meaning that uh, HTTP works good enough to uh, handle the entire World Wide Web, which is the biggest distributed system we've ever seen. <laughs> right. So it's a good default choice. <laughs> However, you might uh, consciously choose to optimize and choose a uh, different communication. For example, RabbitMQ, ZeroMQ, message queues, or whatever. You said you usually decide that per project. If I chose RabbitMQ, 
would that typically mean that I'm probably making that decision for a project that likely is going to have 15 components and all 15 components are going to use RabbitMQ? It's not going to be one of them uses Rabbit and the other five uses HTTP and the other one uses zero MQ and like it's usually across, right? Yeah, it has to be across. Obviously, yeah. in there are uh, like that's the default choice. Like mm-hmm. when you're deciding how the components will communicate, that you're setting the default choice. Obviously, in some uh, rare scenarios, you can choose performance optimization and say, for example, okay, that these components have to communicate directly with each other using highly efficient binary protocol. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, when you come to that choice, uh, you have option either of uh, allowing these two com- components to communicate via this new protocol, or you might need to cons- reconsider if these two components are tightly linked together. And then maybe there it has to be one component, or you have to redesign the system to face the new requirements, it has to be a choice in each case. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I guess if you had to, you could build integration components that only specialize in translating between two components that have to talk or something or whatever. I'd avoid to do that because that would introduce the complexity. Yeah. Well, uh, and the components, I'd say, uh, the whole idea of microservices architecture is that you're decomposing a system into something really simple. So if you zoom at the level of component, it has to be relatively simple. Mm-hmm. If you look at the system from the high-level perspective, it's just a bunch of components that kind of makes sense. Like, for example, registration process uses users, and it uses email component, and it uses billing forms to handle the registration process. Uh, while doing that, for example, it creates new user, it uh, sends a new invitation email, and it also uh, uses registration information to fill the first version of billing form. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's like you can talk about the system, like without going into the implementation details, and uh, this high-level overview, it makes sense. Right. And if you zoom into the level of the component, you still have manageable uh, level of complexity to deal with. It's just a bunch of classes. For example, a mailing component is just a component that accepts send mail message and pushes it directly to the uh, SMTP, your email provider. Mm-hmm. Or it uh, can alternatively uh, enqueue the message for later delivery without uh, forcing you to handle failures in case of email provider is not available immediately. Hmm. So uh, my email component currently, it has only a message sender. It has a queue, which was taken from Lockout Securus because I usually want to enqueue emails and process them in the different thread. And it also has access to event store because I'm just uh, appending events like email was sent, email was sent, email was sent. That's it. Hmm. Okay. And uh, actually, uh, microservice architecture becomes really interesting when you have to migrate your legacy system into the towards the microservices. That's when you need to start thinking about, okay, so I have this uh, really linked and complicated system. What if I were to start breaking it down? What would be the communication choice for the components? What are the components that I can break off, tear off easily? Which are the components that uh, would take more effort for me to break off? And so uh, migration of uh, Locat backend to microservices, I think it took like two or three months. But during that period, uh, the system was still running. Yeah, because you're so, able to break up each each existing component into little chunks and do them one at a time or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Well, and also one of the additional advantages, if, like, if you design something, if you set some additional design guidelines for your components, for example, in this case of this project, we ruled out that the components have to be relatively stateless meaning that they either store stuff uh, in the event store or they have uh, like uh, in-memory view projected from events. 
Right. Uh, and this actually, this decision allowed us to have two uh, instances of component servers behind a load balancer, meaning that we can now upgrade servers without downtime. Uh, meaning that, for example, we can uh, shut down the first node, or well, take the node from the load balancer, shut it down, uh, upgrade it to a new, ver- new version, upgrade, uh, plug it into the load balancer, and then do the same with the first or uh, the second node. Mm-hmm. And also, like since all components expose HTTP endpoints, and they are located within a secure uh, server, so that is secured by uh, SSL. HTTPS, uh, and it also has a unified authorization system. It means that the components can talk to each other. They are using some features. However, if there is additional product, external product at Locat that might benefit from some information or from some service, it can already plug and reuse that features. Right. Uh, for example, a few days ago, I was asked by a teammate of mine if he was able to retrieve information, name of the account by ID, or even better, retrieve a list of names given the set of their IDs, if it was possible to do. And actually, like, uh, since I had to do the same already for other components, this uh, API was already available. Right. And as additional side effect, so previously we had our early complicated system, and right now, the front-end UIs, uh, they used to have like look at secure infrastructure being bundled in them. All right now, the front UI is just a relatively thin web UI that is stateless, and all that does is just simply interacts with the backend API to display some information mm-hmm. and accepts commands. Cool. So basically, starting to think about a system as something that can be decomposed into small components, uh, it can lead you toward a situation where the system is much easier to reason about, is much easier to evolve, uh, and it's more fun to work with. Of course, there is a downside, is that you have to start more, putting more effort into planning this evolution, and you have to invest a conscious effort into maintaining this component and maybe rewriting them, if it makes sense. Maintaining the integrity of boundaries, it's really important. Otherwise, if you just uh, let things develop uh, the way they used to be, especially in the network world, the components might start uh, developing unnatural relations to each other, unnatural connections to each other, and growing into entangled mess from their start. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like an interesting uh, way to develop software, and I think that each organization probably has to make the decision around how much money do we have and how much are we willing to continuously invest in our products so that we can hire developers that even have the skill set to be able to do these kinds of things and uh, keep them interested to maintain it. <laughs> because I, from a business perspective, I could see that if I wasn't willing to make an ongoing, continuous level of investment to to really care about making sure this was always okay, care and feeding and everything, and maintaining you know higher-end developers, in my opinion... Um, then I might find myself in lots of trouble when those, those high end developers get bored <laughs> that it's no longer fun. And now I've got, you know, uh, a Haskell component, an Erlang component, a Java component, a C sharp component. And I'm looking on uh, Elance trying to find somebody that can maintain my 20 components that nobody understands. Uh, actually, I guess, <laughs> I guess they're simple. So hopefully they can figure actually, it out. But. <laughs> yeah. Actually, okay. So there is a component that uh, was written, for example, in Haskell that you don't understand. But, uh, and why do you actually need a Haskell developer to continue development? The component is small, simple, and developers, they can uh, usually read any language with a little bit of effort pretty good. 
-hmm. Like uh, writing a code in a coherent way is more hard. But okay, so I don't count write the next version of this component in Haskell. Okay, I can write that in a Go language or Erlang. Mm -hmm. So since you keep your conscious effort to keep components small, they actually become disposable. You don't need to refactor them. You can just throw out these classes away and write write a new version in a few hours or even less. <laughs> That's what as I was actually doing while uh, developing this last backend. A bunch of components, they were thrown away and written from scratch multiple times. Hmm. Oh, sorry, implementations of these components. Right, just, right, uh, right. I was optimizing, etc., etc., or simply writing, uh, trying to get a new design. And in the videos that will be referenced in the podcast, there are actually uh, much better examples of by Fred George, for example, and I think there was somebody else from ThoughtWorks, how they were developing much more complicated systems uh, using this approach. Uh, what were the problems and how did they succeed? And actually, Fred George was trying to uh, use microservice architecture for many years, and it didn't work actually in the beginning. Hmm. I guess you, you can think of it the other way too, that as long as you're maintaining that consistent interaction, that protocol between the components... You, you could argue the opposite, that because they, by definition, should be relatively simple, if one completely went crazy, it shouldn't be that hard to, as long as you maintain the external interfaces, you can rewrite it in PHP or something if you had to or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't Absolutely. matter. Yeah. And so basically how the solutions usually end up with microservice architecture in, uh, is that each component is simply a standalone application. They, it's, it, it is even sitting in its own repository. It might have a binary dependence maybe to some infrastructure classes, and that's it. And it might have either a binary or some other dependence to the contracts of other components. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, uh, one more interesting yeah, aspect of microservices is that some languages are uh, more ex allowed to express your code in better way, in more compact, in more simple way. And what Fred George was saying is that I think they were building an advertisement system or advertisement targeting system which was initially written in 150,000 uh, lines of Java code. And they were rewriting it in multiple iterations. Uh, first, they, they wrote it in one language, then they wrote it in another language, and in the end, they arrived at 4,000 lines of closure. <laughs> and this new version with 4,000 lines of closure, it actually did more than this 150,000 uh, lines of Java code. <laughs> yes, we all know that Java and similarly C-sharp can be unnecessarily verbose, but this ratio... A 150 to 4, it's, I think it's amazing. Yes. In the approach that you're using now or that you're learning about now, does there seem to be sort of a common way to document and or let the other people know now and in the future, like, you know, these are the things we agreed upon, these are how the things talk, is it just, does each repository document its assumptions and interfaces and contracts or how, I guess... Enterprisey does it have to get to kind of make sure each component team is playing by the right rules? Well, uh, what I did uh, was to kind of maintain a high-level picture of the system. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of the design decisions uh, I made in the code is that uh, all components in this .NET case, uh, they're running uh, within the same application server. And each component is like was declared by a specific interface that were wired together. And this interface also uh, had to expose a readme file, which was written in Markdown. Hmm. And then I actually uh, created a separate component called readme. This readme component, when the server launches, uh, it actually enumerates all the other components. It takes a readme file from each of these components. It assembles them. 
Uh, it also uh, pro, uh, like builds a list of all the APIs available in the, from the com- by the component. <laughs> uh, it provides the documentation. And uh, there was a rule that I put into this uh, readme component. If the component doesn't have a readme, the server fails to start and throws shame exception. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and so uh, each component has a tiny readme that is usually kept uh, up to date because... Well, when I'm writing a new component, I uh, tend to throw out maybe the previous one away, and I write a new readme. And I'm forced to write a readme, uh, because uh, otherwise the server server will fail to start. (laughs) And I also uh, forced uh, that every method, every service stack uh, request method, it has to have summary information. If any request method doesn't have a summary information, then the server fails to start. (laughs) Nice. And also, uh, each component actually has to have two readmes. One about uh, the API, the public one, and the other one about the implementation details. So <laughs> if I, one of these is missing, the component fails to start. And afterwards, like since the readme component assembles all this into one nice, uh, nicely readable readme, and it exposes it by the public uh, endpoint, here's the documentation of the entire system. <laughs> It also translates into a Kindle ebook, a PDF, a, net, a markdown file, and a bootstrap HTML. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm surprised you don't have like audio, auto generated audiobooks. It sounds like it's good. You know, <laughs> that's nice. You, you well, might be accused of, uh, you need to be careful. You might be accused of ruling with an iron Soviet fist or something there. You know, <laughs> the component will fail to start. You must write documentation. You must summarize. I love it. It's great. <laughs> well, uh, initially it was uh, just for me. Because uh, I don't really like writing documentation. Yes, it was to punish yourself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, and uh, for example, one of the additional things is that uh, there is uh, code hail metrics on uh, Java, and there is a port of that library to .NET that allows you to instrument code. And I actually, uh, what I did, I uh, allow components to inject their own instrumentation metrics, and I have every request to the service stack is also instrumented, meaning that it's possible to open another endpoint, which is managed by another component, which is called status component. And you get immediate information about the performance of each uh, public service method or health of uh, any projection or long-running task, etc., etc. Well, if I was listening to this, I'd be thinking, okay, Renat, you had all this cool low-cat secrets, cool code, like when am I going to get to see some of this cool stuff open source or when are you going to show me some code on how to actually build this cool stuff uh you know are we going to be rewriting gtd version 2 and the microservice edition rewrite you know like what are we going to do to actually learn how to implement this stuff well uh, there isn't actually much to learn basically all you need is if you want to start the default way is to simply grab service stack and start writing services well i would have thought that by now Given some of your past was it relates to projects that were open source that now are not open source, I thought you might have been soured by, by that by now. But you're still uh, you're still cool with uh, Service Stack given its changes to commercial. Well, uh, we're using a Service Stack free. Mm-hmm. It, it works okay, and there aren't any real problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, if things develop, maybe there is uh, in .NET world for building public. Uh, services in a non-painful way. Maybe it would be worth using Nancy FX. Basically, there are options. Right, right. And, uh, you don't. You can swap our service stack to something else if needed. Right, sure. And actually, speaking about the sharing, so one thing that we can try to do is uh, remember with Locat Secures there was 
public open source version of users and registration yes. flow. I think uh, later on we can actually uh, port that to the microservices way and show f- people how uh, things can be done in a really simple way. And that'd be awesome because, I mean, not only would it help crystallize the stuff you're talking about here, but <laughs> those are two fairly generic components that like lots and lots of systems need, so it's a, it's a nice starting point too, potentially. Well, and it's really simple, seriously. Well, says the guy who, you know, can learn five languages in two months and doesn't have his brain scramble. But for someone who hasn't been developing constantly for 10 years, it, what you say is it's really simple. It usually takes me two and a half months. So we'll see about that, buddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really simple. Asterix, if you've been developing for 10 years, you happen to be really smart. Economics is fun little hobby you had. And, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. So we'll see how simple it is. I'll be the judge of that. I'm the dumb one on here. I'll be the worst. Okay. You let me be the worst and I'll let you know how easy it is or not. Okay. <laughs> We're both the worst. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and actually, uh, one of well, a few other things that I learned uh, already at Happy Pancake uh, was like use of different tools for collaboration. For example, using actually uh, Google Hangouts mm-hmm. uh, for recording, uh, like for working face to face and actually doing screen sharing and uh, working together, and using uh, tools like on, uh, collaborative drawing things mm-hmm. just to sketch out things while you're working together. So that's something we can also do. Yeah, that's awesome. That'd be cool just to get the... I saw a couple of tweets how you guys were even just learning new stuff and pair programming or whatever. Like you were collaborating with using this stuff. It'd be cool to just, you know, see how that goes and try it out. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's cool stuff. The next step, well, first to show how easy it is to write microservices. Mm-hmm. So we can do a pairing session and publish the code into a repository, and from the very beginning mention that it's not a framework, it's not even a sample of framework, it's just uh, something that you can that shows you how to do things in a simple way, without uh, the usual over-architecture of mine. <laughs> nice. So, that sounds good. Um, then I guess that'll wrap it up for this one, unless there's any last-minute things you want to get in. Uh, well, one thing I can say is that I think a few years ago, I wrote a post how to become a .NET developer. Yep. Uh, and in that post, I was listing all the cool ways to, cool new technologies within the .NET. Uh, however, my current recommendation will be try learning a new language. Hmm. Even if it's just a few days, like, for example, listening to Eric Mayer's, Mayer's uh, videos on Channel 9, it's t- totally worth the experience. Basically, it just uh, opens up your mind and you start seeing other possibilities, even in C-Sharp and .NET, that you would not uh, be able to see before that. Understanding how uh, what truly being the worst means. <laughs> well, not only that, but it sounds like if we maybe uh, steal some of your readme tr- tricks and have a clear understanding of how the components are supposed to communicate, even in our sample code, we might be able to dabble around and say, okay, you know, let this one's going to be in JavaScript, this one's going to be in Haskell, this one's going to be in C Sharp, and just have the hodgepodge repo of, you know, here's an extreme case of common protocols between five components, all implemented in different languages. And look, it actually kind of still makes sense, you know. Who knows? I don't know if that's a completely idiotic thing to do, but it seems like it feels less risky and somewhat safe to know that, like, well, I'm a, I totally suck at JavaScript or I totally suck at Erlang, but at least it only sucks in this one component. So... Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's uh, certainly good to be back recording with you, bud. And uh, we are at beingtheworst.com. Leave your comments there where uh, we actually read them. You can find me on Twitter at Casey Street and Renat is at Abdulin. And we are also at beingtheworst on Twitter. 
we'll have all those cool links. Check out the videos. There's no homework. My homework on this episode is find go to the links and watch those videos and stuff that Renat's talking about. That's my homework. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, guys. We'll see you next time. And uh, till till then, take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. <laughs> yes, hopefully. Hopefully.